Welcome to Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, corporate beliefs, and ESG, brought to you by Baker. In every episode, we'll investigate how purpose, vision, and values can guide your company's sustainability actions, behaviors, and mindsets. And we'll discuss their impact with the help of ESG-focused guests from around the globe. I'm your host, Rocket. And I'm your host, Gary. Let's get started. Today, we're speaking with uh, John Friedman. John, welcome to Sustainable Minds. Thanks Thank so much you. for having me. Our pleasure. John is a sustainability expert with more than 20 years of experience helping companies live their values and engage in authentic conversations by integrating their environmental, social, economic aspirations into their cultures and business practices. I'm interested in that, John. Currently, John is the Managing Director of ESG and Sustainability at Grant Thornton. As the Managing Director, he's responsible for enhancing the evolution of ESG, including strategy, implementation, and reporting, competitive analysis and benchmarking, ESG integration, metrics, and thought leadership. Prior to Grant Thornton, John was the Sustainability Manager at WGL, an energy company that provides natural gas, electricity, green power, carbon reduction, and energy services. And previous to that, from 27 to 2012, almost a decade at Sodexo as a Director of Corporate Responsibility. John was also the founding board member and member of the Executive Committee Sustainable Business Network of Washington, D.C., now SB Now. And he's the author of Managing Sustainability, First Steps to First Class. I don't mean to sound facetious here at all, but I think the world does need a step-by-step book. And, <laughs> and I'm going to ask you about that. John has a Bachelor of Arts in Communications from Albany State University. He also attended Management Training Program at Duke University. Right. I think that covers it, John. Yeah, it makes it sound like I've done a lot. Yeah. <laughs> so I kind of like to ask some questions, sort of personal to start with, sort of like, how did you arrive here? So what my question is, when you were really young, before the world told you what you should do or be, or your parents told you what you should do, what interested you as a young guy? Well, wow, that's not a question I was expecting. So yeah, I'll answer it twofold. You know, the things that interested me when I was younger were the same things that interested, I think, a lot of people in my generation, you know, music, television, movies, art, things like that. But I think one of the most transformational things that happened to me was when I was a young teenager, my family moved to Europe, moved to Germany to be specific. And that really opened up my eyes. It, you can't travel to other places and not recognize the differences and similarities between the culture you grew up with and the culture you're experiencing. And so that was really an altering experience for me. I've always said that was the most important year of my growing up. Fantastic. Yeah. My grandmother took me, she's Italian, and she took me to the village where she's from when I was 16. And it was, I just was in Europe for a short while, but it was monumental in terms of kind of a foundation connection and something that I'll always remember for my life. So yeah, that had to be a great experience. So I want to talk about what we opened with here. I want to talk about helping companies live their values. But first, let's talk about engage in authentic conversations by integrating 
environmental, social, and economic aspirations into corporate cultures and business practices. How do you make that happen? Or do I have to read the book? <laughs> well, you should do both. We should listen and read the book. <laughs> I like that response. I like to stick with that one. But honestly, you have to start with what is the culture of the organization. And I often say that the culture of an organization is the way an organization lives, not necessarily what's on their website or postered on their walls or in their annual report or even in their presentations. It's what they do day to day. And a lot of companies have sort of five or 10-year plans, strategies, the things that they have outlined is where they're going to go. Are they in a growth mode? Are they in a maintain maintenance mode? Are they looking to integrate new services or new products into their portfolio? Finding the ways where environmental, social, and governance can help facilitate that business strategy is the first step to integrating it to the culture. Because if you compete with the culture and you compete with the financial drivers, you will not be successful. And that's why we often start out with things like energy efficiency. Yes, there's a carbon reduction aspect, which appeals to the emotions of your employees, your customers, your investors, and so forth. But it also has a cost savings. And I've yet to meet a company that didn't sit there and say, let's not save money where we can and improve our efficiency. So it's that low-hanging, obvious stuff, like safety and well-being of your workforce that companies do every day. And they're now sort of under this fancy umbrella of ESG. But I like to say one day we're just going to call it business. Right. Um, I agree. Exactly. So we have a lot of experience in this area. I think values and the associated actions, behaviors, decisions, mindsets that those values inform are really important in terms of shaping a culture within a company. What has your experience been in those areas? My experience has been that when you can figure out what the organization's true purpose is, you can find those values. And so, yes, you could say facetiously and somewhat cynically, a business is in business to make money. But why did it choose to do what it's doing? And to elevate that to a purpose beyond the production numbers that make accountants and people who look at balance sheets and a lot of senior executives really happy. We produce and more product than we produced last month. But what is the impact that product has on people's lives? And what is the impact that that product has in the way you produce it on your employees' experience and the communities around them? You produce it while making dust, noise, pollution, and releasing things into the atmosphere that are unhealthy, then that's an impact of that product that you're producing. And so it started back in the days when I worked for a building materials company. And they were always about the linear feet of wall border, the cubic yards of concrete. And I pointed out that that's not what you build, what your purpose is. Your purpose is to build the home where you will raise your family, the hospital where those children will be born, the schools where they'll be educated, the house of worship where they'll one day get married, and the office buildings where they'll one day provide for their own family. That's a higher purpose. That's why you get up in the morning. You connect your employees and your business to that. Now you have something that's a little bit more inspiring than we rolled out 34% more linear feet than the previous quarterly reporting period. Well, that's absolutely right. And I find that too many people don't really understand that exactly what you were talking about. 
what gets you up in the morning, what inspires or what's the fundamental reason you exist. And if you think about it, people talk about the current generation really wanting purpose with their paycheck. But the fact is, we all wanted it. We just were denied it for too long. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And the values that come out of that, I mean, we have found working with a lot of companies, they just, they have these generic words. They could be five, they could be 10 companies, they could be any company. And so often when we've done corporate value work and defining those values better, we're able to pair them with an adjective that's really meaningful to that company, both the business that they're in, as well as what their culture reflects. Because otherwise, I mean, back in the early days, you just have these words plastered on a wall, and that's about it. Didn't really feel authentic, and it doesn't connect with the employees. Yeah, to build on that rocket, you know, in this business that we're talking about sustainability, greenwashing is a big term, right? But I find there's a lot of purpose washing out there. I find that executives get together in a room and they sit down and, they, and they're going to carve out their purpose statement. And oftentimes it's corporate jargon. It's really a description of their business. They think it's a purpose statement. It's generic. They try to be all things to all people. And that's not what a purpose is about. But I want to digress into why you wrote your book. What was the impetus of the book? It was released in April of this year, and Managing Sustainability, First Steps to First Class. What's first class? What are the first steps? And why did you write this thing? The first reason is why I wrote it. I'd been doing a lot of writing, blogging for a number of websites, including Huffington Post for years. And Business Expert Press came to me and they said, "We have you ever thought about writing this down? Not that it wasn't written, but turning it into a textbook that would be used in colleges, universities, and business schools. And I thought about it and decided it was worth my time to try to do that because I worked with a number of companies, helped them go from, like I said, the very first steps of what is your purpose, alignment with your business strategy, right through to being the top of the sustainability rankings, whether it's Dow Jones or CDP or GRI or a TCFD report that meets all the 11 criteria and so forth. And let's be honest, those criteria and things, what it means to be first class has changed and evolved over the years. And people say how I'm riding this wave. I've been riding this wave a long time, but I got on the surfboard before the wave even started to grow. Right. So your perspective, I'm sure, is very valuable in reading it. Well, and it starts with five keys. And I've been using these for more than two decades now. And the first one is, as I said, it's got to align with your business strategy and support your business strategy. Ask not what you can do for ESG. Ask what ESG can do for your company. Well said. I'm stealing that. that that's paraphrase well, from someone, oh. somebody smarter than me. But the next thing is, it's got to be compatible with the day-to-day reality that your employees are facing. You can't have, oh, let's have the day where we do it right and then just go back to business as usual. Third thing is, you have to empower and engage employees at all levels of the company. And we've heard this concept with safety is everybody's job. Exactly right. So are corporate ethics. So is protecting the environment. Fourth thing, tangible, measurable results. And I would argue now that we're seeing the evolution of corporate reporting and ESG reporting, 
with things like the SEC and the European Union, we just passed it while the day we're recording this, requiring these metrics to be comparable, decision-useful data. And the last one is you've got to engage your stakeholders, both to find out what their perspectives are in terms of what they expect from your company, but also to have a conversation with them so that they understand what is realistic for them to expect from your organization. If you don't do those five things well, you don't have a fully integrated program. That is the first step. And then you can go into the tactics of materiality assessments and figuring out what those things are and how do you and building programs and strategies to address them. And it comes down to, we used to talk about corporate storytelling a lot. I would argue that a story is only as good as it is an invitation to a conversation. Because in today's world, people don't just want to be passive receivers of information. They right. want to engage in conversation. And that's why I say authentic. You don't have to be perfect. Just be real. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, communications is a two-way street. And for so long, on the corporate side, it was so much one way. But And then nowadays it's two-way when you invite it. But uh, obviously with social media, you don't have a choice. It's two-way. So I want to jump back to something that we touched on. And in the beginning, the evolution of business purpose and one day what we call ESG will just be called business. Talk a little bit more about that, if you would. Well, if you think about it, back in 1970, Milton Friedman famously said that the purpose of a business was to maximize its profits as long as it stayed within the rules of the game, which he then goes on to say are those encoded in law and those in ethical customs, societal expectations. What's happening is the stuff we are now putting under the umbrella of ESG has been getting closer and closer to the core of the business. If you think about it, you used to have corporate, what was corporate giving? Well, we pay our taxes. And then it became, no, seriously, that's back yeah. what it was. It was back when the, the, the department that handled your employees was called personnel. And then went to human resources, resources to be maximized. Then it went to employee engagement. Now it's moving to employee experience, getting closer and closer to the actual core of the business and those five principles that I outlined. Corporate giving, we pay our taxes. Then you have strategic philanthropy. We give in some way that's associated with our business. Now you're talking about community investment and you're talking the next phase is the way you do business every day gives back to the community, not just through writing checks or having philanthropic partnerships. But if you have a bi-local commitment, built into your business. So you're supporting the local businesses and the communities where you operate. That is a transformation of your business model. Get it, yeah. Getting closer and closer to the way the business is, like I said, the day-to-day -day reality. So the name has been changing in purpose, corporate responsibility, corporate social responsibility, sustainability, now ESG. One day, let's just call it business because there's nothing in this that isn't running a business well. Who doesn't want to hire the best, engage them to bring their best ideas to you, to your company, not spend their weekends figuring out how to steal your customers with their, two of their buddies in their garage because no one's listening to them in the corporation where they're trying to make a difference right. and so forth. Yeah, so I agree. The way we see it, the world is changing, evolving from what Milton Friedman already talked about. No relation. No relation. Yeah. And so, but corporations, profit is still 
a huge part of measurement of their performance. And some corporations may be doing good in one area or a lot of areas, but over here, they're really screwing up. A Walmart just paid a $3. billion settlement to resolve, and I'm not saying guilt or anything, but that's a lot of money, right? $3.1 billion for the company failed to regulate their opioid prescriptions and distribute it nationwide. So on the flip side of things that we we're talking about, how do we hold more companies accountable and how do we find or help them in these pockets where maybe it's just not right? Well, obviously, profit is important. It's a fundamental tenet of capitalism. That is the best economic system the human species has come up with for lifting people out of poverty and improving quality of life, increasing longevity, and it really, truly, yes, freedom. Because if people maintain the money from the fruits of their work, they have the wherewithal to change where they live and where they go. It gives you self-determination. But it's the breakdown of what I call the Batman-Bruce Wayne paradox. The whole idea, you do good with the one hand and you make money with the other. But I'm not going to ruin anything by saying that Bruce Wayne is Batman. But the thing that people don't recognize is not just the duality, not letting purpose be part of your day-to-day, but Batman actually takes credit for and gets lauded for fixing the problems that in many cases were caused by Wayne Enterprises. Yes. (laughs) The Joker fell into a vat of toxic chemicals at Wayne Enterprises, can there be a better parallel for environmental degradation? (laughs) The penguin loses his family fortune because of the Wayne family building this monopoly and resents Batman and goes on his crime spree because of it. Go one step further. Scope three victim or villain, Harley Quinn, Joker's girlfriend. This is a great parable for capitalism without conscience. And I'll just leave you with this thought. If Bruce Wayne had been vigilant, Batman would not have had to be a vigilante. (laughs) (laughs) That's a good one. (laughs) But it's true. And also the progression of sustainability and sustainability reporting, where in the beginnings they were more just sort of people deciding to try to tell a story to make them look good, but They weren't, as the criteria got stuffer and the frameworks got introduced and were still progressing in that way, especially in the United States. I think that it's helped people realize you can't cherry pick over here and do nothing over here. And that's what the frameworks, I think, have have started to snowball. I mean, I was reading just last week the interesting article that Harvard put out, Harvard Business School put out, where they had looked at 200 sustainability reports just to talk about recent trends and recent best practices. And one of the things, you know, that I felt was interesting was that now on demographics, it's not enough to say how many women, how many men, and how many, what races, that they want to know from those things They want to know in retention, in hiring, in much more detailed to really uncover whether it is core to how the business operates. So I think you're right on to say that hopefully 
it's going to progress to the point where it is just called business. Well, it's interesting. You know, when I first did a sustainability report, one of the big things I was known for was I didn't fake the photographs. And what that meant was if you needed a picture of a team meeting and you wanted a diverse team, burst into a team meeting. I mean, obviously with permission and take a picture of the team that's meeting because if you have to, oh, well, get me three more of these and two of those, let's round out the team, make it look right. Then you don't have diverse teams meeting. Right. On the environmental side, we took photographs. We empowered our employees to go out with their cameras and take pictures of things on their job site. And we used those pictures in the environmental report, the first one I ever did for Lafarge. The idea wasn't that the pictures would be photo perfect. And a lot of them weren't. The picture we got of the elk running through one of the locations was pretty blurry, but it was real. The Mm -hmm. two pictures that were not, that we used stock photography were for an American alligator to stand in proxy of one that we had at one of our locations. And we literally put in the caption, stock photograph of American alligator like the one that lives at in location. And the other one was a pair of river otters because we just couldn't get them to hold still long enough to get a picture of them. And the river otters who lived right on the bank, one of the uh, company's facilities in Davenport, Iowa, couldn't get them to hold still. (laughs) But by saying that, people were stunned. They're like, oh my gosh, this is real. There's the, it was the authenticity. And to your point about the numbers, yes, you can do the numbers to mirror the demographics of the area where you're operating. But you know what tells people if it's a great place to work? Retention. Yes. Are people leaving or are people staying? Are people promoted from within? What percentage of your workforce has been there longer than 5, 10, or 15 years? These are the things. Oh, it's a place people come and stay, especially in today's day and age with the great resignation, which I want to rebrand as the great rethink because people are not... <laughs> People are, I think COVID got us all thinking about what is the purpose in our lives? What really matters to us? People are quitting working for you. They're not quitting working. Companies need to, they need to hear that. There's a lesson there. The companies thought the gig economy was good for them because it would lower costs of benefits and things. And yet, The gig economy sort of started, I think, a lot of younger generations rethinking how they want to spend their their working hours and that they could do have a lot more freedom and do many things at once. And as you say, rethink. Well, it's also the network model that these younger workers grew up with versus our hierarchy. You know, hierarchy, pay your dues, climb the ladder, wait 10 years, and then maybe you get the title and maybe someone will listen to you. Today's younger workers are coming out of college with fantastic ideas, access to more information than ever before in the history of our planet, and they don't want to be told, just wait your turn. I know. And so, obviously, within a hierarchical structure, because businesses are often a hybrid of hierarchy and network, you have to have both if you want those ideas to flourish. Or my analogy of somebody working on their weekends to invent something that will satisfy your customers better than what you have is a reality. It's a reality. Right? Yeah. And businesses grew up like the whole Harvard Business Review there. Right now, someone is, is scheming to take away your customers. I would say if you're not listening to your best employees and your brightest employees and you don't know who those people are, they're the ones who are scheming to take away your customers. Absolutely. You wrote in a recent article, and this kind of connects to that, what ESG critics have wrong and what they have right. And you talk about several things in the article around value creation has changed. And I think we were just talking a little bit about that. Prioritizing more stakeholders 
contributes to growth, but ESG metrics need improvement. So we know who the critics are. Tell us what they have wrong and tell us what they have right. What they have wrong is the politicization of everything from science to human rights and where ideology now gets in the way of what is literally obvious. If your business uses more natural resources in the production of its products than it can source, it will run out of products to deliver. If you're mistreating your employees and have 25% turnover, all the studies show that how long it takes to ramp somebody new up to get them up to speed and to engage them, you're better off with the employees you have, educating them and investing in them. And we've heard that the old joke about what happens if we train up our employees and they go work for someone else. And the argument to that is what happens if we don't train them on the newest techniques and they stay here. And so <laughs> this is not rocket science, but a lot of it is just basic science. And what they have right is that the reporting has talked about greenwashing. You know, there, obviously there's people who will say something fraudulent and they should be under full penalty of all the fines and penalties and the contempt that they deserve for attempting to deceive the public, whether it's about the safety of their products or the environmental footprint of their products. But a lot of people just get it wrong because they haven't taken it seriously. There are studies out there that show that public perception and intangible assets, your reputation, your investor attitudes towards you, your community goodwill are 90% of the value of a corporation that's versus its physical assets on the stock market. There's your business case. People say the stock market is emotion. It is. So how do you harness that? If you were to value companies at simply their financial capital and their physical items that they have in inventory, it would be less than 10% of the value of a company. Yeah, that's what's so amazing, how that shifted. But it shifted since the 70s. When Milton Friedman wrote that, it was almost the other way around. I think it was 18% was intangible assets. It's over 90. And it's a little less for the European indices. The numbers I'm quoting are from a study by Ocean Como, Corporate Valuation 2021. Yeah, right. But what they have right is that we haven't gotten the numbers right enough. They're not consistent so that you can compare year over year. They're not comparable between one company and one another company or an industry and another industry. They have to be decision useful, not just for the woke investors, but for all the investors, but for your customers too, and your employees when they're choosing where to work, and for your suppliers, because if they know that you are an ethically well-run company, they can give you better credit terms, which means it costs you less to buy from them, which means you can add more to your bottom line. This is just business, but we have to do it better. It's a little bit like saying, well, like the first maps when people started exploring the new world. Well, they weren't accurate, so we should stop going there or give up maps. Even today, your GPS, you can put in an address into it and find yourself staring at a brick wall or a parking lot because something's changed. <laughs> but we don't give up on these things. We refine them and make them better because they provide guidance. We're at the early stages. ESG and sustainability have been around for 20 years. Actually, the term was coined in 1987, so it's a little longer than that, but really started to mainstream in business. I've been doing this for 20 years. The SEC has been around for over 100 years. Yeah, well. And they've refined with things like Sarbanes-Oxley and other things all along the way. And there's been resistance to it all along the way. We're trying to do ESG faster, learning the lessons, but also trying to accelerate progress. So talking about resistance, tell us about rebuilding the economy. 
Tell us about moving forward by going circular. I mean, the people hate change. There's the linear economy versus the circular economy. Absolutely. So linear economy is you take natural resources, you add energy to them, and you produce something. And at the end of life, you throw it out. And you can keep doing that for a long time as long as you're not producing, using more natural resources than the earth can replenish in a calendar year or whatever time period you're looking at. It's sort of like borrowing against the bank. If you have something in savings, you can borrow, but sooner or later you're running at a deficit. And we have been running at an environmental deficit for decades. It's something called Earth Overshoot Day. It's the day that's calculated where the we are now consuming more natural resources than the Earth can replenish in a calendar year. And it gets earlier and earlier every year. That's what's attractive about the idea of reduce, reuse, and recycle and efficiency because it requires you to use less. And therefore, you're not going to run out as quickly, but you're still going to run out. A circular economy is where the end of life of one product has new life as another product. Plastic bottles becoming clothing and carpets is a great example. They can either wash up on the shores of our beaches and pollute our parks and neighborhoods, or they can be made into new products that people are eager to buy. The other one I love to use this example is that aluminum soda can you threw out yesterday is the new latest tech gadget that you covet for Christmas because 80% of the aluminum in the world is recycled. Yeah. So you advise your clients. And I find there's like people that get into ESG and sustainability reporting and they come to it with a risk mitigation mindset, right? They want to mitigate risk. But I think there's a value creation mindset Maybe I'm playing to into your book again, but in your business, John, when you come up against somebody that's got this risk mitigation mindset, how do you work with that? That's interesting because I've been the internal person for a long time and just recently moved to being working for Grant Thornton and doing the consulting thing. Yeah. So people, they come to us and they say, look, we just want to make sure we stay ahead of the curve. We don't want to fall behind on the regulations. Right. We don't want to screw it up. We don't want to screw it up. That's mis- risk mitigation. Nothing wrong with that. But I will always point out to them that if everyone else in your industry is also adopting that mindset, you're not differentiating yourself at all with your customers, your investors, your employees, or anyone else that matters to make your business a success. So try to see if there's one or two things that may be already in your corporate culture, already doing, that might make you stand out. A leadership role, not being leading on every sustainable indicator, but on the one or two things where you choose to say, we're going to absolutely table stakes, meet the bare minimum, but we're also going to be special in this way. Everybody likes to think their company's special. Everyone likes to think they have something to give. If you focus on something that they're already working on and accelerate that, you can then get them to the mindset of, okay, what else can we do? When they start to see the value creation, when they start to see themselves in the preferred stock list, when they start seeing employees come to the company because of something the company does that isn't just compliance, something about the culture, the way they treat people. I wanted to work here because you guys have a 94% retention rate. Nobody has a 94% retention rate. And I'm making up that number as an example. When I worked for the building materials company and we put together a partnership with Habitat for Humanity, became our number one recruitment tool. 
because it also connected to the purpose of the company, building yeah. those homes that I talked about. Beautiful. That was strategic philanthropy, but this is always, make it strategic because compliance is not leadership unless everyone else in your industry is a criminal. <laughs> and I'm being a bit facetious, but when you say it that way, people yeah. kind of laugh, but you they get it. get it. You get it. Yeah. Here's a question that I like to ask, and maybe you just answered it, or maybe there's more. We often talk to small and mid-sized companies that are just starting their sustainability journey. What advice would you give them? Because sometimes this could be really overwhelming. So what are the top three things that they should do or think about? I think the first thing they should think about is why did they start the company to begin with? What is your purpose? Why are you here? I don't want to get too existential, but what problem are you solving? Because for, if you solve the problem for, that people have, it's the whole build a better mousetrap analogy, and find a way to do it profitably, that's how fortunes are made. The other thing is smaller companies, yes, they have less resources, but they're also more nimble. They can pivot. They can be more adaptable. They don't have entrenched thinking as much as some of the larger companies or big bureaucracies. So they can afford, if you will, to try something new. Right. Certainly trying something that's, and the integrated model from the beginning is a lot easier than, and growing along the way than when you're a company of 10,000 people and having to change mindsets. So they should see it as an opportunity rather than be afraid of it. Right. And what is the founder's vision? I found the founder's vision at Sodexo was to improve the quality of life for people whenever and wherever they came together. That was written down on a napkin in 1966 by the founder. And I was lucky enough to work there. And I worked at the corporate office in Paris. I met the CEO, the man who wrote that down in 1966 as his vision for his company that grew to be one of the largest companies in the world. Wow. And again, Gage, to your point about vision and mission, yeah, it's simpler you can say, if you can't say it simply, you don't understand it. And it doesn't have to be a big lofty statement. It just has to have Truth. true core meaning to why you exist. And what difference you're going to make. Yeah. And often with the building materials company, Lafarge, it became the tagline, materials for building our world. That riff on what the company really does. It's like, okay, what kind of world are you going to build? Yeah. That's what we do. That's a purpose statement, not just a tagline. Grant Thornton talks about wanting to be the most admired professional services company. Admired. That's the goal. I like that. How do you get admired? It's got it for your clients. It's going to be one set of metrics, the quality of your work, price, and so forth. For your employees, it's got to be the employee experience. For the people who work with you, it's something different. For the communities where you operate, it's something different. But admiration as a goal for a company, that is a powerful purpose. That's a North Star. Yes, that is a North Star. I'm going to kind of wrap it up with two more here. Today, at this moment, if you had this magic sword or magic wand, what's the most important issue today that you would change? I think we have to recognize that these issues are interrelated. Things like climate change, the developed world is going to have the opportunity to come up with ways to mitigate the worst effects of climate change. We have to start caring about the planet and what happens to other people. So I'll put it a little different. You have to recognize that the concept of not in my backyard has become completely passe because 
everyone's backyard is someone else's front yard. And that goes for environment, but it also goes for social justice, equality, human rights, everything. We need to start not thinking as insularly and start thinking as a species. Okay. Powerful. I like that. Thank you for that. Now, you've been doing this for over 20 years. So look forward five, 10 years. What is this? And I'll call it industry. What does sustainability ESG look like five, 10 years out? On my host, most hopeful, these metrics are reported in a way that is meaningful, actionable, decision useful, not just for the investors, like I said, but for the management of organizations that they recognize that these are, even though they're intangible assets, they're every bit as powerful and every bit as important as the financial metrics that we are traditionally used to seeing them evaluated on and by. Nice. That's Uh, very nice. Very nice. Very useful. I ask this question with every guest, and this is the first time we've heard that answer. So thank you for that. (laughs) Thank you for your time, John. It's been a pleasure, John. Yeah. A lot of great stuff. Let's stay in touch. Thank you so much. I really appreciate the opportunity to talk to you and to anyone else who's listening on the podcast. Anyone who wants to reach out to me, I'm on LinkedIn. I'm at John Friedman, still on Twitter for now, and uh, love to engage. (laughs) And buy the book. Oh, yes. Of course. Wow. My publisher would kill me. Yes. Buy the book. It's available on Amazon in ebook and in dead tree form. Terrific. Thank you. Thank you, John. Be good. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Hey, thanks for listening. Just a reminder to follow Sustainable Minds wherever you get your podcasts. And please do live a review if you like what we're doing. It helps others discover the show. And of course, we want more listeners. If you want to find out more about how we can help you evolve your corporate brand, culture, and ESG, head to bakerbrand.com. See you on the next episode of Sustainable Minds, exploring the interplay of corporate brand, core beliefs, and ESG.